This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else, and it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, Not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. Hi, and welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. My guest today is a man who's known as a musician and a game-changing musician. 20 years ago, his album Play shot to the top of the charts and changed the way a lot of people thought about and listened to music, at least did for me. There are still songs on there that I listen to, and I've listened to much of his music since then. I'm talking, of course, about Moby, who, aside from his incredible music talent, is a passionate vegan, but not a proselytizing one. And we'll talk about that. There's a big difference. He's never preachy. At least he's never been preachy with me. 
He has uh, owned a tea house in New York and the wonderful restaurant Little Pine in Los Angeles in Silver Lake, from which some really good recipes came. I wrote about them once. I love talking to him about food and a bunch of other stuff. We talk regularly. We've become friends. And, and we never don't have a good time, as you'll hear. This interview is no exception. So we'll have that. We'll have some awesome summer recipes. We'll have your questions and more today on food. Okay, on to recipes. Look, I want this podcast to be as useful as possible, obviously. So I'm going to try to do recipes that aren't pasta with tomato sauce or that aren't mashed potatoes. I'm going to try to do things that are challenging, but challenging in the most in the simplest way possible. So this is a time of year where many people are confronted through farmer's markets or CSAs or roadside stands or whatever. They are confronted with vegetables they have no idea what to do with. I mean, this happens to me. I just had a vegetable for lunch. I didn't know what it was. That's another story. One of my thoughts is that I'm going to try to like either give you totally basic uses for things that you might not have dealt with before or on uses you haven't thought of for things that you may have too much of. So one thing that everybody says, what the hell am I supposed to do with this, is kohlrabi. And um, kohlrabi kind of resembles a turnip, and it kind of tastes like a turnip. It can be green, very, very pale green, almost white, purple, not dark, dark beet purple, but eggplant purple, or pale eggplant purple, lavenderish. And it can be as big as a softball, but it's better when it's tennis ball size. Like other root vegetables, it can get woody in the center if it if it grows too large. So you can think of it as a mild turnip. That's kind of what it is. It's certainly in that family. And if it has leaves, those are edible too. So the simplest thing to do with a kohlrabi, and in some ways the best, is to slice it really thin. If the skin is thin, you don't have to peel it. If the skin is thick, you'll want to peel it. But Either way, slice it really thin. On a mandolin would be best. Be careful and dip it in salt and eat that or sprinkle it with a little olive oil and salt and eat that. It is like a mild, delicious turnip. And that's that's kind of my favorite way to eat kohlrabi. However, when there's too much of it, when you're sick of that, try this. Cooking it in a little bit of butter with some cream and some horseradish. Here's what you do. Put a chunk of butter in a skillet, start melting that. You will add some peeled and cubed kohlrabi, say two of them or three of them, about a pound. Peel them, cube them, add them to the butter. Save the greens if you can. As I said, you don't have to peel them if the skin is thin. Add a chopped onion and cook that at the same time and cook it until the kohlrabi is almost tender. You can add a tablespoon of water, which will hasten the cooking, but you don't want this to be watery. Add the leaves when the kohlrabi is just about tender and just cook a little bit longer. And then add quarter cup, a half a cup of good heavy cream and a tablespoon of grated horseradish, either fresh or prepared horseradish is fine also. Just cook that until the mixture becomes creamy, add salt and pepper, serve. That is um, really, really good. You can use mustard instead of the horseradish if you like also. Dijon mustard would be really good in there. So kohlrabi, one, raw, two, cooked like that. Enjoy that.
Now it's time for my chat with Moby. We'll talk about music and drinking and veganism and drinking and um, non-veganism and some other things as well. I think it's a hoot. I really had fun doing it and hope you enjoy listening to it. Thank you for doing this. I wanted to talk mm, a little about veganism, a little about Little Pine, and maybe, if we have time, a little about sobriety, if you're all right with yeah, that. Yeah, that's great. Well, probably more mine than yours, but whatever. Okay. One of the things I really have liked about you, about our relationship, is that you are a vegan. You have been for X years. What's that blank? How long? I've been vegan now for 31 years. That's a while. That's probably as long as anybody. But you don't proselytize and you don't guilt trip. I mean, not to the bad-mouthing vegans in general, but, you know, they tend, their reputation anyway is that they're a little harsh, and yet you're not. So I just kind of wonder where that balance came from and how you're so, you know, we do pretty readily agree on how people should eat, even though we kind of come from opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, and I don't want to sound too much like a former philosophy major. In terms of, let's call it like vegan activism, when I first became a vegan, you know, I was a former punk rocker. And so my approach was as confrontational as you can imagine, you know, getting in fights with family members about, you know, why they shouldn't be eating cheese. And, and at some point I realized that when I was being really confrontational and really aggressive, all I was doing was making people defensive and annoyed, you know, and I, I have to believe that the goal of activism is not to annoy people, right. you know, because when someone's annoyed and defensive, they're really shut off to actually, you know, being open to hearing what you have to say. So at some point I realized that like my being confrontational, my being sort of judgmental and didactic, it was making me feel good. You know, I could feel self-righteous, I could feel smug, but it wasn't actually leading anyone to consider what I was talking about. Right. Even to think about it, let alone change their actual minds. That was a self-realization that actually happened it gradually happened over time. I mean, because I sort of thought that my being, you know, a really militant confrontational vegan was simply almost like a rational, warranted extension of my beliefs. You know, I thought, you know, if I have passionately held beliefs, I have to express them passionately. But then I guess there's that question of like, what is the, the ultimate goal of activism and what criteria, you know, I don't want to sound too academic, but by what criteria do you judge your approach to activism? And I sort of took a step back and just realized, as I said, that like by being a douchebag, I was just irritating people. <laughs> so what do you say to people now or do you not say anything? I mean, honestly, the climate has changed so much, you know, a combination of, you know, Articles in just about every newspaper, every magazine about, you know, the health consequences of an animal product based diet, all the movies like What the Health and Forks Over Knives, remarkable TED Talks such as yours that oh, sort of have you. led everyone to question their approach to eating animals. And so a lot of times I feel like I'm almost a sounding board. Like instead of me having to in any way proselytize, people come up to me and in a weird way almost have less like a Socratic dialogue with themselves while I sit mm. there and say nothing. Or one of my favorite things is when like the newly converted tell me facts 
that I first read 30 years ago. And I never, yeah. I try to be as, I mean, and maybe this is really like douchey and patronizing of me, but I try not to like say to that person like, oh yeah, the facts that you're all excited about are facts that people have known for a long time. Like it's nice that, you know, the, the newly converted, you know, are excited about these facts, but it's, you know, the facts have been there for a while. Right. Are more people sort of coming up to you and saying, oh, wow, I'm now vegan? Or are they saying, I'm eating a lot less meat than I used to? Both. I mean, every now and then, out of the blue, someone will randomly come up to me and tell me that they're vegan. Like, it just happened recently with Adam Schiff, you know, the, the congressman from California. I was in my restaurant, and he was in my restaurant, Little Pine, and he came up to me like, smiling and beaming and he said i just wanted to let you know i'm a vegan now <laughs> i was like well that's that's great and to put it in perspective i mean 31 years ago one veganism was so weird no one knew how to pronounce the word right. vegan i remember debates with my fellow vegans back then of like were we vegans were we vegans did vegans? we eat? you know like what, what and eventually i guess for some reason we settled on vegan maybe because it sounds punk rock i don't know but also to put it in perspective, like where I live in California, in, in Los Feliz, there are more vegan and vegan-friendly restaurants within a two-mile radius of my house than there were in the entire world in 1987 when I went vegan. But also, I mean, something you and I have talked about is the idea that for a lot of people, there's this sort of binary approach. On one hand, you have like Piers Morgan saying that vegans should be crucified, and on the other hand, you have like militant vegans saying that meat eaters should be crucified. And I find that, I mean, this is true with culture, with politics, is like the middle ground is a much more sort of like calm, rational place to be. It's a lot easier and it's a lot more respectful rather than, you know, just like two people who vehemently disagree with each other screaming at each other on the top, at the top of their lungs. That is where we meet. So, yeah. I just want to say one more or ask one more thing about this, and that is that so many people seem to think that veganism is an, I an ideal. And for a lot of those people, it feels like an unachievable ideal. And then I have to have this conversation or wind up having this conversation, which is it doesn't necessarily have to be an ideal. What's practical and an ideal is to just eat less meat and eat a lot less meat and eat more plants and eat a lot more plants and do that for the rest of your life. And somehow, because we are a sort of saints or sinners society and, you know, there is always that kind of odd, polar expression of opinions, everybody thinks, oh, well, if I'm not, not everybody, God knows, but there are mm -hmm. many people who seem to think, well, if I'm not a vegan, I'm a failure. I need to be a vegan. And it's just this kind of odd North Star for some people. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, there's a quote from Voltaire and I think Obama paraphrased it in his first inaugural address. And he said, don't let the pursuit of the perfect be the enemy of the good, you know, and it applies to, to just about everything. It applies to exercise. It applies to meditation. It, you know, like it's better to do a little than to do nothing, but it's a hard conversation to have sometimes because people have get so emotionally entrenched regarding their opinion about eating animals. And I mean, I admit I'm, I'm, I can be one of those people, but you know, I certainly think, you know, like for my aunts and uncles who are in their seventies, you know, the idea of them becoming militant vegans is a little far-fetched. The idea of them 
being reducitarians or flexitarians is a lot more achievable. And the truth is everyone benefits, like they benefit, climate benefits, the animals benefit, healthcare benefits, like every, everything benefits even from that sort of reducitarian, flexitarian approach. I wanted to talk about Little Pine, which is your restaurant in Silver Lake, right? Which I've eaten at and is great and you know that and um, small and charming and vegan and all of that. It also gives all of its or you give all of its profits to animal rights organizations. And I wanted to know if you started it with that idea, if that was always the case and how that happened and whether you're just a saint or, or what. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, as you know, opening and running a restaurant is just about the dumbest thing anyone can ever do. Because I, I used to own a restaurant in New York called Teeny, and I opened it with an ex-girlfriend in around 2002, and it ended up doing okay considering neither one of us had any small business experience and neither one of us had ever worked in a restaurant. So we right. were utterly clueless, and somehow it did okay. When I ended my involvement with Teeny, I sort of swore to myself I would never ever in a billion years try to open another restaurant because i mean i'm sure there are harder jobs but like the fact with the restaurant as you know it's super hard to get open it's incredibly expensive the margins are terrible and if you are not perfect every second that you're open you'll get crucified on yelp and crucified and you know different reviews so opening a restaurant is hard and dumb maybe i'm just a masochist you know, that I wanted to open a second restaurant after swearing never to do it again. But I also realized in the world of veganism, there are great podcasts, there are great books, there are great movies, there are, you know, there's lots of great vegan media, but there's something really powerful about going into a really nice restaurant with a great wine list and really nice food as almost like a form of really appealing vegan activism because nothing mm. in little pine like we give all yeah i give I, I give all the money to animal rights groups but there's no criticism or judgment or didacticism in the restaurant you know like meat eaters come in and i hope they feel really welcome and and looked after you know no one no one criticizes them you know for the clothes they're wearing or the fact that they might have eaten at in and out burger earlier in the day it's one of those very, very few vegan restaurants that you could go in and eat at without knowing that it's a vegan restaurant. I mean, that happens to me a lot where like <laughs> an older person might come in who's never had vegan food and they'll come up to me after their meal and, and sort of and admit to me. They'll say like, look, I was dragged here. I didn't want to go to a vegan restaurant. <laughs> and they'll look at me and they'll say, but, but the food was good and I feel full. And like, to me, that's the reason to go through all the struggle and hardship of getting this, you know, getting a vegan restaurant open and running it when it sort of potentially changes someone's opinion about veganism and vegan food. You know, again, I'm not looking for that same person to become a vegan evangelist, you know, and suddenly like throwing fake blood on fur coats. But like, if I can just move them just an, an inch, I feel like that's that's the reason that we keep our doors open. That's so great. And I would guess that the maybe the giving away the money thing makes it so you can worry a little less about those terrible margins and all of that stuff. I guess you're lucky in that you don't have to make a living on it, so it'll work either way as long as you're not losing too much money. 
Yeah, I mean, giving the money away and combining it with my own charitable giving actually makes me work harder on the restaurant than if I was just doing it for selfish reasons or for entrepreneurial reasons. Because also, I mean, we're a, we're a small restaurant. Our margins are very small. Like if I was just doing this to make money and be an entrepreneur, I would be the single dumbest entrepreneur in the world. You do hear restaurant people say that kind of thing a lot. Like, why did I think this was a good idea? Yep. I wanted to talk. The last time we saw each other, I had been sober for two months, I think, and it's now six months. And you've been sober again for X years, not 31, I know, but some impressive period of time. Well, now I've been sober for 10 years. I applaud you in your sobriety. Seems like it's really working for you. I mean, I think that the difference might be like you're sober for very sort of like rational reasons. And I'm sober because I'm just an old timey falling down alcoholic. And if I drink, <laughs> I die. But that is actually the qu the question that I had was this kind of old timey falling down alcoholic definition of alcoholism as, you know, as put forth by gospel pretty much by AA. I didn't stop drinking for any urgent reason, as you said. It just seemed like a good idea at the time, and then it stuck. But then suddenly it turns out that there is this sort of new sobriety movement. There are two or three books written about it, and people are talking about it, which is not about, oh, I'm an alcoholic and I can't take a single drink, but it's sort of about, oh, I think I might prefer being not hung over every morning or five mornings a week or whatever, and I might prefer having my wits about me all the time. I don't know that there's a question here, frankly, but that's what I'm encountering. Yeah. And if you can do that, that's great. Anyone who can drink in moderation or abstain for really rational reasons, like I think, or even anyone who can like drink and just have fun and manage the hangovers, I <laughs> applaud all of that. For right. me, my problem was I'm a true alcoholic addict. Like this is my example of me trying to drink in moderation. It's about six months before I got sober, I was really trying to prove to myself that I could be a normal human being and just have a couple of drinks. So I went out one night to Indochine, you know, on Lafayette Street, and I was with some friends and I was like, okay, I'm going to have two drinks because this is what normal people do. They go out and they have two drinks. Like at most they have three. At eight o'clock that morning, I had had 15 drinks and had spent $300 on cocaine and was having sex with an Israeli performance artist I had met like three hours before that, and then I was hung over for the next two days. So that was my best effort at drinking in moderation like a normal human being. That is a, it's a pretty good story. I don't have any such stories, but honestly, I feel better and it's good. So, and I often, you know, it's probably because you're so articulate about it. I often think of you about this stuff, but... um appreciate your openness. It's really great. Okay. Last question. This is, this is the, the sort of throwaway and it may be a question that you hate because you probably get it all the time because it's a music question as opposed to a personal question, which is, I, I mean, I think of extreme ways, which is, you know, people think of it as the Bourne theme song with good reason. And I still love it. I guess it's 20 years since I first heard it, roughly 20 years. It's an unavoidable song. You must hear it too. Are you sick of it? Do you hate it? Do you think it's, I love this. It's a work of art. I'm so proud of it. How does it strike you now? Well, when I was growing up and I started, first started playing in punk rock bands, my goal as a musician 
was to put out a seven inch single that maybe a hundred people would buy. And maybe if I was lucky, play a show in New York somewhere that 50 or a hundred people would come to. So my baseline for, for success was so low that everything beyond that has been weird and surprising. And the premise of the question that like, would I be annoyed at hearing one of my own songs because I've heard it too often? Like, no, for so many reasons. I mean, one, I'm right. a narcissist and I occasionally, I do actually <laughs> like listening to my own music. And two, it just never dawned on me when I was growing up that anybody would ever hear a piece of music that I made. So the fact that like I was out the other night and uh, this has happened a few times, like a guy who used to work at the CIA came up to me and he said, you do know that Extreme Ways is now the like unofficial theme song of the CIA That's because hilarious. of the war movies. I was like, really? Now that's great. Now tell me when is Trump going to prison? <laughs> and his answer um, to that was? His answer to that was soon. He said, Can't basically, he was, like, there, he, was like, yeah. he was like, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. It's going to be pretty soon. It's good to hear that from the CIA. The weird thing about the song Extreme Ways is I wrote it when I was super famous and drinking all the time and the hangovers were gentle, but the lyrics are weirdly prescient because the lyrics are all about bottoming out. And I remember when I wrote it thinking to myself like, oh, these lyrics are, are you know, hopefully they'll never come true. And then lo and behold, they came true. And now that's why I've been sober for 10 years. Awesome story. All right. We're going to play a little of that now. I'm going to let you go. It's great talking with you. I have to say I'm Slightly in love with you. It's really nice to chat. So, um, <laughs> right back at you. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. 
Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no insulation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. 
How are you? I feel guilty saying it, but I'm actually fine. I mean, with so many, I don't know what the plural of apocalypse is. Like, is it apocalypses, apocalypsi? But like with so many things happening that are potentially going to destroy the only home we have and our species and other species. Like I was actually reading the Times today, this article about guilt, and I don't know if I have it to the extent that other people have it or specifically around the issues that it that are triggering guilt for other people. But I do feel sometimes a sense of almost dissociation where like if your immediate circumstances are relatively pleasant, are you allowed to enjoy that when the Middle East is falling apart, democracy is under attack, future elections might not even happen, the rainforest is burning down, the pandemic is still raging in certain places, they're burning bodies in India, etc., etc., etc. Like, am I allowed to enjoy drinking a cup of organic white tea and reading a pointless article about, you know, the early works of Marcel Duchamp. Like it almost seems like Nero fiddling as Rome burns, enjoying these small things. But at the same time, there's that moment where you're like, okay, I'm in my living room. I see that the world is falling apart. In this moment, there's nothing I can do. So why not just sort of take a little bit of refuge in your organic white tea and your book about, you know, Schopenhauer or Duchamp and enjoy that. Maybe that's complete bourgeois and title justification. I have no idea. You know, I think it was C.P. Snow who said there's the human condition and the social condition, and you can do something about the second, but there's nothing you can do about the first. I, you know, if you want to go work full time on making the world a better place and give up your personal life entirely, I'm sure you you can figure out a way to do that. But I don't know anyone who's built with that ability. And everybody seeks solace and pleasure in their personal life to the extent they can get it. And yes, many people feel guilty about it, I think. And then there's sort of like, you know, pertaining to the human condition and not to go down this rabbit hole too far, but like our complete lack of omniscience, which means that the ways in which we think we might fix humanity or fix the world, history's filled with people who were convinced that they were fixing things. And then in hindsight, turns out they were not. Maybe it's, again, just sort of like a bourgeois caution of thinking, oh, I want to make things better, but given that I do not have omniscience, I'm not 100% sure how to achieve that. So I'm just going to you know, watch an old episode of 30 Rock and drink some tea. Well, there is an in-between, but I'm not, not that I'm arguing against watching 30 Rock and drinking tea, but I mean, you're right about that. But I think that argues for, and I hate to say it, I think it argues for caution, a lack of fanaticism, moderation. I mean, that's a word, you know, my younger self is is freaking out at hearing me even utter that word. But I think, you know, if we can change things a little at a time, then we can measure the the effects of the things that we do and presumably not go commit a Holocaust because we think it's the right thing to do or something. I mean, climate change-wise, many people think we're running out of time, so drastic action is needed. So then what? where does that leave you? Yeah, and then the question, 
Because for example, like drastic action, I completely agree. The question would be, what would that drastic action be? You know, like what could any individual, and I'm, I completely agree with what you're saying that I think that, you know, my approach to activism to try and change the world is like every day do something, you know, and try and always have that in your mind. Like what more can I do with the understanding I have limited resources no omniscience. And so there's a good chance, you know, we might go down a lot of cul-de-sacs saying like, let's try and fix the world this way. And then you go down that cul-de-sac, like as an early animal rights activist, I thought the best way of advancing animal rights was yelling at people and throwing fake blood on fur coats. And then at some point you realize like, oh, when I yell at people, they don't change their minds. They just simply get annoyed and stop listening. And if I throw fake blood on someone's fur coat, all I've accomplished is pissing off the person wearing the fur coat. Like there's no reasonable dialogue happening. So it's, you know, we do our best with the understanding that we know very little. I want to hear about three things. I want to hear about Little Pine and the cookbook. I want to hear what you're doing musically and I want to talk on the record about what you're listening to. Usually I talk to people about what they're cooking, but in your case, I'm more interested in what you're listening to. Okay, so music-wise, I'm actually putting out a new album on May 28th. I'm also putting out a documentary. This director made a documentary about me. It's called Moby Doc. So the album's called Reprise, and it's basically an orchestral greatest hits. So I spent the last three years... Yeah, so working with a string quartet, working with a gospel choir, working with a whole bunch of different singers. I mean, some well-known singers, some lesser-known singers. If I'm playing favorites, my favorite vocalist on the album is Chris Christofferson, because he sings a song called The Lonely Night with my friend Mark Lanigan, and these are the voices of experience. These are not 19-year-old pop stars. These are people who've been through the ringer, and you just, you hear it in their voices so clearly. So that and what's also interesting, it's coming out on Deutsche Grammophon, which is the oldest, probably most respected label in the world. And I just think it's, for me personally, self-involvedly, it's sort of ironic because when I was 16, I was playing in hardcore punk bands, playing to five people a night. When I was 19, I got a job DJing in a dive bar, playing to 10 people a night. I never expected to make music that anyone would listen to, let alone work with orchestras for making a record for Deutsche Grammophon, the oldest, most respect. Like if you'd come to me when I was 16, playing guitar for a band in Portchester, New York, to an audience of four people, two of whom were our girlfriends, that's not a recipe for making an orchestral record with Deutsche Grammophon. I mean, you had incredible success in what, 1999? I'd say like with some qualified objectivity, the commercial period where there's a lot of commercial success was really like 2000 to 2004. Does this feel, does Deutsche Grammophon feel like a bigger deal to you than, than everybody listening to what was the album now, right? It depends on what country, but basically the albums Play, 18, and Hotel, like those were the three back when album sales were measured in millions or tens of millions. You know, now album sales are measured in zeros and zeros of zeros because nobody buys albums, which is fine. Um, so, but this, I mean, like artistically, like especially the way in which I made the record was so different than how I normally work. Because normally I'm in my studio where I'm sitting right now. It's quite small and it's just me by myself. And this involved, you know, like as I said, a gospel choir 
30 different guest vocalists, uh, percussionists, drummers, engineers, conductors, arrangers, string quartets, brass sections, orchestras, etc. Like it was so many people. And it was just so interesting to end up with something that I think has this like really wonderful emotional depth to it. So uh, not everybody knows that you founded Little Pie in a Vegan Restaurant in Silver Lake, right? Really great place. We've been there together a couple of times. I've been there without you a couple of times. And now there's a cookbook. Yeah. So the restaurant itself, I no longer own the restaurant. When the pandemic started, I had to learn how to shut down a restaurant in the middle of the apocalypse. And considering I barely knew how to run a restaurant, shutting it down Suffice it to say, it was not it was not a clean, smooth, simple process, and it created a lot of ill will around it on the part of the people who had worked there. It was it got a little messy, and I'm sure, absolutely sure, I could have done a better job. But it's hard to close down a restaurant during the apocalypse when family members around you are dying and are sick, and when no one has ever shut down a restaurant during the apocalypse before. Like there's, it's very unprecedented. So it was uh, very challenging. But then luckily, two friends of mine who actually have experience running restaurants bought it from me. I lost money, but still like the fact that it could stay open. And I just realized restaurants are kind of like airplanes. Like they should only be operated by people who know what they're doing. Because when I ran Little Pine, like, Luckily, the people around me knew what they were doing, but like I was clueless. I knew how to turn on the lights and I knew how to press play on Spotify. Beyond that, I was just clueless. You either hired the right people or you encouraged the people you did hire to produce good food because the food was great. Well, partially, I brought the ethos to it without an understanding of how anything was actually made. And so to that end... I knew when I ran it and owned it that I wanted it to be very, and I guess this is, I don't know if this is a real term, but like vegetable forward, you know, and I wanted it to be sort of this intersection between like high end and populist, you know, like I wanted to challenge people a little bit, but also reach them where they were, you know, inspired by, you know, actually like when I lived in New York being brought to non-vegan restaurants when they would make vegan food. And I would be so, I was like, wow, this is kind of sad in the way that the best vegan food is being made by non-vegan chefs. And I wanted to sort of borrow that ethos without being too academic. Because as we know, like there are a lot of restaurants that go down the academic route and it photographs well. It's beautiful to talk about, but you don't want to eat it three times a week. I wanted this to have that sort of like that intersection between populist and challenging. As I said, I really like it. I hope it stays close enough to the way it was the last time I was there. Cause I, every time I ate there, I really thought it was, and as you know, I'm not a vegan, so I have no sort of reason in principle to go there. I just liked it. I think they've gone a little more populist, which as they know what they're doing, I'm sure they have good reasons for it. Because obviously like when I craft helped craft the menu, I was clueless. So I would say, oh, let's have you know, sriracha glazed Brussels sprouts. And my chef would be like, well, you do understand that involves ordering 20 ingredients we're currently not using. So, and it involves someone spending two hours a day prepping. So like I had to learn that you can't have every item on a menu be bespoke and unique. Like when we first opened, 
I wanted to have, I love good hand-rolled vegan pasta. So we had hand-rolled agnolotti in this truffled cream sauce. And at some point, my chef came to me and said, you know, we have someone on staff whose only job is making agnolotti. And I was like, oh, oh, yeah. So I guess I'm an idiot. Like I, this is why restaurants should be run by people who know what they're doing, not just some, you know, dim-witted bald guy who shows up every now and then with opinions. Well, how many vegan restaurants are in LA at this point? Do you have any idea? Well, generally speaking, so I've been a vegan now for 34 years. There are more vegan restaurants in my neighborhood in LA than there were in the entire world 34 years ago. And they just keep, they keep coming. And, and like there's highbrow, there's lowbrow, there's a German vegan restaurant. There are now, I think, five vegan pizza places it's kind of mind-boggling considering, you know, 34 years ago, there was Angelica's Kitchen in New York, and that was it. Okay. But so the Little Pine Cookbook is coming out, but and it has your name on it, but that's sort of your last Little Pine thing. I think so. And I'm hoping, I mean, like, because Little Pine, I ran it as a nonprofit. Any profits that came in went to animal rights organizations, so I never took a penny from it. In fact, I lost money on it. But the cookbook will be the same thing. Any profits that are generated will go, I'm either going to pick like five animal rights organizations or maybe just one. I mean, the organization I work most closely with is the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, basically because it's, it's all doctors. And as a result, it's just, there's a weight when they say something, it's not just college dropout vegans like me with opinions. These are doctors and researchers who, when they say something, it's really, it carries that weight. We have this whole other interview we did two years ago that we're going to merge with this one. So we don't need to go into, there's a lot of stuff we don't need to go into. I really would like to talk about what you're listening to, although maybe no one else is interested in that, but I am because we've had good conversations about music and I'm just curious what, in between making this orchestral stuff, what's turning you on these days? Clearly not 19-year-old pop singers. I mean, every now and then, you know, like when I first heard Billie Eilish, I was like, what a voice. Like, I mean, like I actually, I fully understand why she became this phenomenon because just largely her voice. I mean, the music is great, but that voice is so distinctive. What I'm listening to, I'm a little ashamed. And maybe we talked about this last time where when I first got Spotify on my phone, I thought, okay, I'm a middle-aged guy, but through Spotify, I'm going to stay up to date. Like I'm going to know what, what the kids are listening to. And I have almost exclusively used Spotify as a nostalgia machine. You know, like, I don't know if I've listened to anything on Spotify that was made in the last 30 years. You know, so it's even going back to, like, listening to a lot of early classical music, a lot of Baroque music, but then a lot of the punk rock I grew up with, everything from the Gun Club to Devo to New Order to the... I mean, I had this rabbit hole where I sort of went started listening to a lot of Cars, like the band The Cars. I don't know why. They're so fast. Like, they don't make any sense to me, but they're great because they're like the least attractive pop group of all time. And it almost felt like there were these alien, like these alien lizards who came to Earth to perfect pop music without fully understanding it. Is it more than like three good songs? Because when I listen to The Cars, it's like... I was surprised when I went to Spotify and looked at like The Cars' greatest hits. I was like, oh, there's like 10 great pop songs there. I just listened to uh, 
just what I needed. It's the only one I care about, actually. Listen to Let the Good Times Roll, because it's menacing. Like, it's, I remember when it was, when it was on AM radio, when it came out, like, you remember, like, in whenever, the late 70s, like, you couldn't escape it. You go back and listen to it, it actually feels like performance art. I mean, it's such a good pop song, but the way it's sung and constructed, it's definitely like, these are, like, bizarre artists and not necessarily just pop musicians. So that's an example of like going down these nostalgia rabbit holes. And of course, our shared love like of Roxy Music and early Brian Ferry. In fact, it was seeing Brian Ferry perform with an orchestra that led me to make this record with Deutsche Grammophon. That's really cool. Did you talk to him about it? He did it at the Hollywood Bowl. And I went backstage and I'd never met Brian Ferry. I mean, obviously he was just delightful. Like he was so exactly what you'd expect. Like even backstage, like wearing a beautiful suit, soft-spoken, very genteel and polite. Like he's so, but then when I was backstage, I talked to the woman who books the LA Philharmonic. And then I did a show with the LA Philharmonic and that led to making this record. I got to see if there's a recording of that Brian Ferry with the orchestra. Cause I would like that. I bet. The Hollywood Bowl wasn't, I mean, there's a wonderful place, but like you don't really hear the acoustics of an orchestra. That's why when I did my LA Philharmonic show, I did it at Disney Concert Hall. Cause I was like, if, if I'm going to play with a 130 piece orchestra, I want to hear the orchestra, not just the orchestra through microphones, but you want to hear the live acoustic, you know, surround sound orchestra. So is there anything that's been made since 1990 or so that you're listening to? <laughs> well, the one thing that comes to mind is Burial. It was this British artist, I don't know his real name, and he made one record, oh, I forget what it's called, and it's one of the most special electronic music albums I've ever heard. It it won a bunch of awards when it came out. I wish I could remember what it's called. It's got a drawing of like a guy wearing a hoodie sweatshirt on the front, and it's that special. And of course... I love James Blake, but I also resent James Blake because I really wanted him to sing on my orchestral album and he wasn't able to do it. So like, I haven't been listening to much James Blake just purely as a result of my petulance and resentment. There you go. I'm glad you're not too grown up yet. William Bevan, that's the burial guy. And the album that you might be thinking of is Burial. It's called Burial. Named the album of the year. His second album was called Untrue. Yeah, I don't remember, again, because of Spotify, I just know whatever that record, it's got a dark cover with an illustration on it. And it's sonically, it's, he just did something that I'd never heard before, which like he's working in this sort of genre of like hip hop inspired dance music, but it's, it's fascinating. Oh, listen, I'm getting, I'm getting a little more into that kind of dubby stuff than I used to be. What I try to force myself to do is I read reviews of current stuff in either The Guardian, which does a great job, or Pitchfork, which, you know, that's what they do. And then I just, I use Spotify the same way. I just put them in a queue, things I've never heard of, would never listen to. I just put them in a queue and I either start saving them or deleting them. And it just gets me to listen to stuff. And then I wind up, you know, liking one out of 10 things, but still, it's all all stuff I never would have heard of if I didn't do it that way. I mean, I do something similar. Like if the New Yorker, they'll have an article about like, 
a new pop star or like this super interesting musician making their new record. And I'll go to Spotify waiting to be blown away. And I'm like, oh, okay. And this has always been the case with the music press. There's so much unwarranted hyperbole around things. And so it builds up. You're like, you're like, wow, I'm going to go listen to this revolutionary, phenomenal new musician make. And then you listen to it and you're like, oh, it's a pop song. Or like it's a person with a guitar and maybe they're fine, but it's certainly, they're not, this is not, you know, I don't know, Led Zeppelin 4. It's not Goat's Head Soup. It's not, you know, like it's, it's not London Calling. It's some person in Brooklyn making a record that is a solid C+. Okay, I have one recommendation for you, and that's this band called, and I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it right, Tear, T-E-Y-R. And I believe they're Welsh, one Welsh person, one Scottish person, one Irish person. And it is like folk classical. I think it's genreless. I think it's really, really good. So try that. It's on Spotify. Okay, the album's coming out May 28th. We made air after that, but... Thanks for joining me. Before we get too deep into summer, before things get away from us, one more recipe that you probably can't make in August, but you can probably still make now. And you may be able to make again in September, but that is strawberry and arugula salad. It's a weird combination. They're both super strong tasting. They are contradictory, contrasting flavors. This is the easiest, most unusual, and one of the most wonderful salads there is. So take uh, three or four cups of strawberries, but good ones, obviously. Hull them, or don't hull them, but trim off the little green leaves on top. Have them or quarter them, depending what size they are, and combine them with about an equal amount of arugula. Again, three or four cups, maybe a little more arugula. Toss that with some olive oil, two tablespoons, three tablespoons, enough so that the whole thing is glossy, and the best balsamic you can lay your hands on, about a tablespoon. Add a pinch of salt and taste that. That is the dish, and it is a surprising and wonderful and delicious salad, and time is running out. You probably won't find much arugula in August, but both arugula and strawberries come back strong in the fall, so July and September for this dish. Okay. Okay, it's time for some questions. As always, you can ask your questions by calling 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. Hi, this is Samantha calling from Middlebury. I wanted to ask what your favorite pizza toppings are. Well, Samantha from Middlebury, Connecticut, who asks, what are your favorite pizza toppings? This is a story. I don't really like pizza toppings. I like pizza. And um, I grew up at a time when 90% of pizza, I grew up in New York, and 90% of the time pizza was sliced pizza, i.e. for 15 or 20 cents. It did, the price went up when I was about 10. You would get a slice of pizza that was made with decent mozzarella, decent tomato sauce, some olive oil and oregano that was always on there, and um, a real chewy crust. And I think the quality of sliced pizza, every New Yorker who's of a certain age will tell you this quality of sliced pizza has declined dramatically. But for whatever reason, I liked cheese pizza. I didn't want anything else on there. Occasionally some sausage or peppers or onions. Onions I like, but I don't go for 
lots of stuff. I certainly don't go for salad on top of pizza or barbecue chicken or any of this kind of crazy new stuff. I am very much a traditionalist, so I'm sure this is a disappointing answer, but that's me. I realize it's not a popular opinion, but that is the way I feel about that. Hi, this is Lynn from New York. Here's a question for you. Why do the guys who work at Xi'an Famous Foods slap the noodles on the counter really hard before boiling them? Interesting question, this noodle question, and Melissa is going to take it. Melissa. So a couple of years ago, I was doing an article about noodle pulling, and I went to Taiwan with a Pittsburgh restaurant owner. And the guy's name is Mike Chen. He's amazing. And he owns this restaurant called Everyday Noodles, and it's based on this chain called Din Tai Fung. Anyhow, um, he knows a lot about noodles and has to buy special flour and hire people who are really good at what they do because this whole restaurant is based just on these pulled noodles. So when we got your question, I called him up and I said, what is the deal with the banging of the dough on the counter? Is it like doing something to the dough, like kneading it in some way, or does it have some positive effect? And he said, no, most of the time you'll see noodle pulling in an open kitchen of some sort, and it is just to get people's attention. It is purely for the show. That's all I got. I hope it helps. That's it for this week's listener questions. If you have a question about food, cooking, whatever, call us at 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. It is midsummer. We are awash in vegetables. I hope today's recipes will be helpful. They're really good ones. Just a word about midsummer and what your refrigerator probably looks like or should look like, which is just crammed with vegetables that you're dying to cook. And we are starting to get into, or we have gotten into what I like to call hard vegetables. Not That is not just leafy things, but cucumbers, summer squash, and every year there are more and more summer squash on the market that you haven't seen before. I mentioned before that I cooked something for lunch that I didn't quite know what it was. I would call it a bitter melon, and it looks like a bitter melon, but I got it at an Indian market, and I don't know what it would be called there, but awesome. I made that with some eggplant and some ginger and garlic. I just think it's the best time of year to be a cook and a time that you can um, really make your diet more and more plant-forward and enjoy it like you can enjoy it at no other time of year. So keep cooking, have fun. We will see you next time. I want to thank my passionately vegan but not crazy or scary about it friend Moby for coming on the show. You can find him anywhere, obviously, but follow him on Instagram at Moby, Twitter at The Little Idiot, and Facebook at Moby Music. I like a guy who varies his handles. Folks, if you liked today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at BittmanProject.com or at MarkBittman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. 
Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.